Good evening. Kansas votes to keep abortion a constitutional right. A black civil rights organization is raided by the FBI and accused of working with Russia, the truth behind drones, and homeless migrants in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the News in Exile for Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. Kansas voters sent a resounding message in support of abortion rights on Tuesday. They rejected a ballot measure in a red state with deep ties to the anti-abortion movement that would have allowed the Republican-controlled legislature to tighten restrictions or ban the procedure. You know, we have uh, worked so hard for the past um, year, but the you know, last couple of months to really, um, you know, communicate with voters about what this is really what it what was at stake was our constitutional rights and our freedom and so um, you know a coalition of voters across the political spectrum came together today and voted no they voted no um, to protect their neighbors um, they voted no on changing the Constitution um, and really um, you know demonstrated our free state roots um, here in Kansas are alive and well I'm super proud to be from Kansas tonight and I feel like my state just showed up and boldly told me that they are going to take care of me and female friends and everyone that can get pregnant in the state of Kansas. We are protected tonight. It was the first test of voter sentiment after the Supreme Court's June decision overturning the constitutional right to abortion. It was an unexpected result with wider implications for the midterm elections. The heavy turnout for an August primary that typically favors Republicans was a major victory for abortion rights advocates. The no vote opposing the changes to the Kansas State Constitution won by more than 20 percent. In 2019, the Kansas State Supreme Court declared access to abortion a fundamental right under the state's Bill of Rights. Rights. The proposed amendment would have added language stating it does not grant a right to an abortion. The measure's failure also was significant because of Kansas's connection to anti-abortion activists. In 2009, Dr. George Tiller, a doctor whose Kansas clinic provided late-term abortions, was murdered by an anti-abortion extremist. In related news, President Biden today signed an executive order paving the way for Medicaid to pay for out-of-state abortions, speaking virtually from the White House where he's recovering from COVID. Biden said the Supreme Court practically dared women in this country to go to the ballot box and restore the right to choose that the court had just ripped away after 50 years. The new directive allows the Secretary of Health and Human Services to invite states to apply for Medicaid waivers. States where abortion is legal could then provide services to people traveling from a state where abortion may be illegal to seek services in their state. And in related news, the Department of Justice sued Idaho today, challenging that state's near-total ban on abortion. Idaho makes it a felony to perform or help perform an abortion. The Department of Justice says that contradicts a federal law requiring doctors to perform an abortion if necessary to save the life of a woman. In more national news, the Russian government says it will end diplomatic relations with the United States if a bipartisan measure in Congress passes designated Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. A spokesperson for the foreign ministry said Washington runs the risk of finally crossing the point of no return with all the ensuing consequences. The measure was introduced by Democrat Richard Blumenthal and Republican Lindsey Graham. Graham had this to say. There's one thing we haven't done in Washington that can really matter and that's designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism under U.S. law. What does it mean? It means doing business with Russia with that designation gets to be exceedingly hard. It has second uh, 
layer sanctions. It would uh, secondary effect sanctions. It would limit dual export items. And most importantly, it would waive sovereign immunity when it came to suing Russia and U.S. courts. So this designation would be a nightmare for Russia. It would be an encouraging event for the people of Ukraine. And more importantly, it would be a statement to the world that the United States, in a bipartisan fashion when it comes to Russia, is not forgiving and we're not forgetting. Meanwhile, also on Tuesday, Russia's Supreme Court designated Ukraine's Azov Battalion as a terrorist organization. The battalion is rooted in far-right and ultra-nationalist ideologies as in fighting Russia in eastern Ukraine. And last week, FBI agents in three cities used flashbang grenades, smashed windows, and sent in drones targeting the homes and offices of the U.S.-based African People's Socialist Party in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Petersburg, Florida, and Sacramento, California. Residents, including party chairman Omali Yeshetel and his wife, were handcuffed as the agents took away computers and cell phones. No one was arrested. The raids were announced by the Department of Justice in a separate news conference in St. Petersburg as a result of the indictment of Russian citizen Alexander Ionov, who the U.S. government alleges funded and supported black organizations as part of a foreign malign influence campaign against the U.S. Those words are theirs. Although no organization was mentioned directly in the indictment, there were references to unindicted co-conspirators who the Russian allegedly helped in a local election campaign in St. Petersburg several years ago. Ionov, under the supervision of the Russian FSB, directed and controlled the activities of three U.S. political groups, including one right here in St. Petersburg, Florida, another in Atlanta, Georgia, and a third in Sacramento, California. Ionov's taskings to these political groups included the filing of petitions with the United Nations, the promotion of separatist and secessionist movements, the funding of protests to create turmoil within the United States, and the publishing of pro-Russia propaganda. A candidate for office in St. Petersburg was Akili Anai. She's currently spokesperson for the party. Although unnamed, she is probably one of the unindicted co-conspirators. Anai says she was the only candidate running on a platform of bringing reparations to black people who suffered centuries of slavery and persecution. It was the African People's Socialist Party that did that campaign. It was Russian African. Money? Did you accept Russian money see my public records and the donors that came through that we have to report publicly. Yes see that? Russian see, see check our public records. You want to be a part of the state's investigation? You check their public records and see what resources we accepted. So yes or no, did you accept Russian money as part of your campaign? You are trying to make this discussion about something that it is not. You want to know what this real problem is about? If you, are, you, if you are genuinely interested to know what this situation is about, not live in fancy land about whether or not I accepted money from Russians, this is real. Not the way you want to see it, not the way you want to, con to control the narrative. What I'm talking about right now is that they're using Russia as a part of a propaganda tool against the people to turn you away, to win, first of all, win your unity with the U.S. government. The U.S. government has no ability to answer any of your questions, none. It can't solve any of your problems, and they tell you that it's Russia's fault. Russia is not in your community causing you to starve. Russia is not in your community pushing you out. Russia is not the St. Pete Police Department that killed Tyron Lewis in 1996. It was not Russia. It was the U.S. government that did that. And I went on to compare the raids with FBI inaction after a surveillance camera caught a person using a flamethrower earlier this year to attack the group's flag on a pole in front of their St. Pete headquarters. 
Just a few weeks ago, the Uhuru House was attacked in broad daylight, where an arsonist came to the Uhuru House and burned down and attempted to burn our red, black, and green flag that waves at our offices down. There was no FBI investigation into that person who tried to burn down our flag. There was no response from the FBI and the, uh, the St. Pete Police Department to respond to this attack that came against our Uhuru House. And we also understand that that's not a coincidence, that the only revolutionary organization that's done something here on the ground practically for African people is the one that's come under attack. The, re the, the, the institution that offers a community radio station, a newspaper, a commercial kitchen, a, an Aquaba Hall rental space, and community office for our organizers, that was the building that has come under attack. Akili Anai is a spokesperson for the African People's Socialist Party. Akili did not confirm or deny receiving support from INF. No one has been arrested for the flamethrower incident. Party chairman Omali Yeshtila says the party has gotten no money from Russia, but would have accepted it if the money came. He said, ain't no Russian been responsible for what we face every day in our lives. Well, first of all, we have never taken a penny from the Russian government. But I'm not saying that because I'm morally opposed to taking money from the Russians or anybody else who wants to support the struggle for black people. Because you have a government that just gave, at the last count I saw, $40 billion, $40 billion for, 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 for Ukrainians and, and other agents coming from the United States and all over the so-called Western world to kill Russians. And there's no question about that. $40 billion, but I will tell you this. If you go up and down West Florida, you will see an extraordinary improvement as has occurred, not from Russian money, but from solidarity by people, from people who unite with the struggle for black people to have freedom. That's where that basketball court came down. The government didn't do that. The Russians didn't do that. Black people and our supporters opposed to colonialism helped to put that basketball court down there. Omali Yeshatila is chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. The African People's Socialist Party was supported by the Black Alliance for Peace. A member of the group, Nefa Freeman, spoke with WBAI. He says the raids are a political hit job against the black community. These raids are the continuation of the history of state repression that's directed against black people in this country and represents a new McCarthyism that dictates what's acceptable in terms of ideas and associations that outside agitator thing, they're accusing the African People's Socialist Party of being affiliated with the Russian government. So it's kind of that, that this kind of a trope, the outside agitator that goes back to the anti-communism history of the U.S. That, you know, when it gained prom prominence back the, the Communist Party, they were saying they're accusing the com of Communist Party of infiltrating black communities in the U.S. to subvert um, uh, really basically what was this fascist order of, of Jim Crow. And the same thing they did, uh, really, they accused the anti-colonial movements for independence in Africa as being influenced by Russia and taking a side in the Cold War. And also, we ha can't we can't fail to mention the FBI's COINTELPRO program, the counterintelligence program of the FBI that was exposed by the you know, in the church committee hearings by Frank Senator Frank Church. This is the same thing. It was the, the subversion of the black liberation movement and also the indigenous people, the American Indian movement. So this repression, we don't have the right to determine what's in our own best interest and who we affiliate with. So black people are still bearing the brunt of this. It's a reaction 
a historical reaction to their waning influence around the world, the United States' loss of legitimacy and that sort of thing. And, we, and also we should see it as the counterpart, the domestic counterpart to this new legislation they are trying to pass. It's they already passed the House called Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act. And so it passed unanimously in the House, but now it's waiting for the Senate. We should be concerned that this was happening with the African People's Socialist Party. will give that more credibility. The act actually is dictating an affront to the sovereignty of African countries, saying that they need to be siding with them when it comes to the uh, aggressions or their, their disposition against Russia and China or whoever. There's two candidates. One might be um, personally called undicted co-conspirator number three and undicted co-conspirator number four, uh, Jesse Neville, who ran on a reparations platform, Aretha Akili might be number four, and uh, she also ran for office on a similar reparations position. So, you know, they're saying that pushing reparations is divisive. And You're exactly right. Well, we have to realize the, the foundation of the United States it is a settler colony, and that settler colony is defined by three pillars. That's white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy, and it's an imperialist one. So it cannot, everything that's really internationalist, Anything that really encourages the exercising of the rights to self-determination is antithetical to neocolonialism. They really, in terms of the principles that people really should, and the human rights that people should be avowed, are antithetical to the interests of the ruling class in the international finance capitals. We don't even have to really be guilty of anything. We really should have the right to be able to associate with whoever we want, have any type of political beliefs we want. And if they're what they pose, present to the world is worth anything, if it can stand its test of scrutiny, they shouldn't be threatened by it. But right now, they're creating a situation where we can't even, we're not supposed to agree with anything that may come be seen as coming out of Russia, that be said to be spreading Russia propaganda, just by agreeing. We don't have to be associated with them in any real sense, anybody. We can't retweet anything that may, like, retweet a tweet by Putin or somebody in Russia. That could be said to be some kind of thing. That for Freeman is with the Black Alliance for Peace. According to Yesha Taylor, the FBI also raided the AAPSP's radio station, Black Power 96.3 FM, and raided the offices of support groups linked to the party. On Sunday in Afghanistan, a United States drone killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri with a missile while he stood on a balcony at his home in Kabul. Zawahiri, an Egyptian surgeon, had a $25 million bounty on his head for allegedly helping coordinate the September 11, 2001 attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people. President Biden announced the assassination, saying, Now justice has been delivered. At my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawahiri. You know, Zawiri was uh, bin Laden's leader. He was with him all the, the whole time. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time the terrorist attacked 9-11. He was deeply involved in the planning of 9-11. He carved a trail of murder and violence against American citizens, American service members, <clears throat> American diplomats, and American interests. And since the United States delivered justice to bin Laden 11 years ago, Zawahiri has been a leader of al-Qaeda, the leader. Justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. Biden said he authorized the strike after months of planning and that no civilians or family members were killed. 
White House spokesperson John Kirby told CNN the United States didn't have DNA confirmation of Zawahiri's death, citing visual confirmation along with other sources. But Lori Calhoun, author of We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age, says besides the lack of proof Zawahiri was indeed the target, the drone attack was another example of U.S. violation of a country's sovereignty. The United States withdrew from Afghanistan, so they are now a sovereign nation, and we are now assassinating people on their soil. A second one is just we don't really have sufficient grounds yet for knowing who the, the charred corpse was. The Pentagon itself has said that they have no DNA evidence, we, and we know from last year, on August 29, 2021, a group of 10 civilians were killed by a drone strike, which was initially said to be uh, taking out a terrorist who was planning attack, an attack on the Kabul airport. So basically, we don't really have enough information at this point. The initial reports on these strikes is always positive. So uh, they've taken this, they're running with it, and it's a little bit suspicious to me because they added in their report remarks such as no family members were killed, no no civilians were killed or harmed. There was only one person in this house, and we got him, um, and he happens to be the number two al-Qaeda figure we've been hunting for 20 years. It's possible, but it's also possible that he was already dead, and they just took out an empty house. We don't know at this point. I saw that movie about how they are so tortured about killing a child, but they must do it in the end in order to kill the terrorists so others may live. You get these kind of stories in Hollywood told about drone strikes. What's the truth? You do get these stories. And when you interview drone operators themselves, you get basically two positions. One is the one you just articulated, which is that it's a necessary evil, you know, occasionally we'll have this collateral damage, but we have to do this. And then you have the apostate drone operators who have left their profession, and they've decided that the whole thing is immoral, and they shouldn't be doing this to anyone anywhere, because basically what they're doing is executing suspects on the basis of circumstantial evidence. And along with the suspects, they're killing family members. This is extrajudicial execution, you're saying, not warfare. That's exactly what it is. So we're not at war with Afghanistan. The United States went in and executed someone. They're claiming it was the number two al-Qaeda and making a big fanfare about this. And it's possible. But it's also the case that it's an act of assassination. We're not at war with Afghanistan. And this sort of killing has been going on for the last 20 years under the guise of the war on terrorism. Now it looks like we've just completely normalized assassination, where the United States government believes that it can go into any country, anywhere, and kill anyone for any reason. And they get the last word. They write the, the history, the official story of what happened. And we're supposed to just accept that. Uh, we know, though, from the drone strike last year that when the United States does not control the narrative, when people on the ground can bring forth evidence, then it sometimes turns out that the story is not what they claimed it to be. Lori Calhoun is author of We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age. The drone attack is the first known U.S. strike inside Afghanistan since the chaotic withdrawal of U.S. and Allied troops and diplomats in 2021. Closer to home. Last month, New York City Mayor Eric Adams called for federal assistance to help with what he said was migrant families arriving on buses sent by the Texas and Arizona governments. New York is required by law to house people who come to shelter intake facilities by that night. However, it was reported many children were sleeping on chairs and on the floor at the intake facilities instead of being packed off to shelter beds.
The mayor said there was no cover-up of the failure to house the migrants because what he says was a flood of nearly 3,000 asylum seekers. When a reporter pushed back that border states had denied the practice of busing migrants to the Big Apple, Adams angrily responded. The people who are sending people away, they tell you they did something differently and automatically you believe them. I wish you treat me that way. <laughs> you believe them? <laughs> you know, the mere fact that they sent people out of their state, people who were seeking refuge in our country, they sent them away. Did they deny that? No, they said they sent them to D.C. and oh, They should never send them away. Okay, okay. They sent them away. They sent them out of their state. Our country is home of the free, land of the brave. We do not be co become cowards and send people away that are looking, looking for help. So if they want to justify that in their own little way of saying, well, we send them to Washington so they can do a layover, then come to New York, they can say what they want. They were wrong. They ended up here because they didn't get the support there. Sally North is spokesperson for the Coalition for the Homeless. She says the mayor exaggerated the migrant numbers, adding migrants are always coming to New York City. It's not 3,000 people that have arrived from the border. There is an increase in the shelter census in recent months across the entire system. So the system for families, the systems for adult families who don't have minor children, and the system for single adults. Uh, who don't have any other family members with them. Um, and we haven't been able to get the details from the city on exactly where they're seeing the increase for which parts of the system. They gave us some general thoughts on that this week. But it's very clear that there are. this is a much more complex set of factors that affect how many people are in the shelters at any point in time not least of which is there is an increase in the shelter census for families with children every summer going into the school year. It's a very predictable phenomenon. It happens like clockwork. And it's because of how families and landlords handle when a family will be evicted or a family will leave an apartment that they can't afford anymore. They really? don't want to do it during... They don't want to do it during the middle of the school year. So for decades, the, the number of homeless families seeking shelter in New York City rises very predictably every summer. That's not to say that there isn't also something going on with some number of people that I will call immigrants because I think it's very difficult to pin down the exact immigration status of individuals and families that are coming to the city. There are people who come as asylees, they come as refugees, they come as immigrants who are documented, immigrants who are undocumented. So I think the characterizations that we've been witnessing the last few days um, have been leaving the public m misled about what's going on. There's also the expiration of the eviction moratorium. Evictions are beginning to rise. Rents have skyrocketed and people are unable to afford their apartments and they're just becoming homeless as a result of not being able to sustain their present living circumstance, not necessarily being evicted. Is he taking the bait from people like Greg Abbott and the rest of them and just, uh, or is he part of it? 
Nobody has the ability to understand what the mayor's thought process is, and I'm not going to pretend I have a crystal ball. I will say I think that it's easy to conflate and confuse an issue that is complex like homelessness, and it's regrettable because I think the public should understand from a more transparent effort from the city to explain exactly what these dynamics are. One thing they mentioned yesterday at the news conference is that they don't collect immigration status from people, and that's a good thing. But then you can't turn around and say the entire increase in the shelter census in recent months is people seeking asylum. The mayor is acting like Giuliani. A lot of people are saying that. What's going on with this mayor? Are we going back to the bad old days? Well, I think we do have a lack of accountability with this mayor, and I think the truth is that we identified that there was a problem with the city beginning to run short on shelter capacity last week, and we sought a meeting with them and asked them, what's going on and what are your plans? You know we have a seasonal surge in demand for shelter among homeless families with children. You've only got dozens of units available. You need hundreds of units available in order to have enough flex in the system to be able to house people. So I think that it, there may be a political opportunism going on. But the truth is that we've always had immigrants. And so I think that this is just misleading the public, and it's really unfortunate. I would rather see this administration be transparent about the fact that they, in fact, broke the law several nights. They may still be breaking the law by not providing shelter to people that are lawfully entitled to it. You know, our last statement that went out last night is that we in legal aid are prepared to go to a litigation if the city can't comply with the law. Sally North is a spokesperson for the Coalition for the Homeless. Last month, there were more than 48,600 people in the city shelter system, compared with just under 46,000 in May. And finally, Mayor Eric Adams said today the city cut Staten Island Ferry Service to just once an hour through at least Thursday morning amid a mass worker no-show. There have been ongoing service reductions in the iconic Orange Ferry schedule in recent weeks. The Department of Transportation initially blamed it on a rise in COVID-19 infections among workers. But labor leaders with the Marine Engineers Beneficial Association, the union representing the ferry workers, disputed those claims, saying the outages were due to chronically shorthanded crews and absence of wage hikes since the Bloomberg administration making it harder to attract new employees. And that's some of the news in exile for Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. The news is written and produced by Paul Durienzo.